0: Well, hey everybody. Welcome. Page 17 in your notes. And I think our crowd can be attributed a little bit to sickness. Yeah, there's stuff going around. Yeah, there's stuff going around. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is, if you were with us the first day, the first couple of days, last fall when we started the class... And people were kind of shoulder to shoulder in here. And I told you then, I prophesied that as time goes on, you know, if we start a new semester, everybody's just geeked. And then after a few weeks go by, they're not so geeked uh, anymore. So part of it's sickness and part of it is not so geeked. But nevertheless... I'm glad to have the the true geeks here. Yeah. I'm glad you guys showed it's up. Been <laughs> it's getting cold. Now I gotta work. Now I gotta work at it to show up. But we're on page 17 and looking at the Acts, and you see at the top there the Acts and the Epistles of the Apostles, as part of our How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible class, which has got these three parts: survey, and then understanding the Bible, and then applying the Bible. And we're in that first part, but we're very close to just this page and the next, and we'll be finished with the uh, survey portions. (coughs) No later than next week, we will be done with the, the survey, and then we'll move on to part two. But you see on page 17 that all of the references there are from the book of Acts. Same thing is true on the next couple of pages. Because... These notes uh, document the progress of the church in the book of Acts and then note in, uh, in various uh, paragraphs, for example, down at Acts 10, you see toward the bottom of the page, you see in bold uh, the word James. The book of James was written at this time. So throughout these paragraphs, you'll see references to other books of the New Testament that were written during the time that the events that were recorded in the book of Acts occurred. So this is all going through the book of Acts and the first uh, several decades of the of the church. And the book of Acts is, as I've told you the last couple of weeks, a transition book. It is transitioning from one nation to all nations. God's program had been carried out prior to the book of Acts through one nation, the uh, nation of Israel. It's uh, moved from one nation to all nations, from Israel to the church, from the apostles to the priesthood of all believers. You see that transition taking place in, in the book of Acts. And then from law to to grace. So all of that's, that's happening in the 28 chapters of, of the book of Acts. And it starts out where Jesus left off and Jesus left off before he ascended back to the father with his final instructions for the apostles and those final instructions we call the great commission and those are given in uh, a few places Matthew 28 19 Uh, go and make disciples of all nations baptize them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you and I'm with you to the very end of the the age And that Great Commission is also given in Luke chapter 24, the end of the Gospel of Luke. And Luke gives some additional details about where this um, mission is going to begin and the content of the preaching that will occur uh, as the mission goes forward. He says that Jesus told them to stay in the city until you receive power from on high. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. So it's another statement of the Great Commission with some additional detail. And then in Acts chapter 1, when the book of Acts opens now, Jesus ascends back to the Father, and now the apostles are left to carry out this mission that Jesus has has given, to begin this mission that Jesus has given. And he has said, stay in the city, the city of Jerusalem, until you receive power. Uh, he has said when you carry out this mission you're going to baptize you're going to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins and that's where you find them when the book of Acts starts fifth book in your new testament starts with them in Jerusalem waiting and they receive this power beginning in Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit comes upon them and a, a sign is given to them that this is beginning and that sign is that they're able to speak in languages that they had not learned and there are people there for the feast of pentecost the bible says from every nation under heaven there are jews there from every nation under heaven and they hear the apostles speaking in their languages and so this is a sign and peter explains then what's taking place beginning in chapter 2 and verse 14 all the way down to verse 36, and then in verse 37 of Acts 2, the people hear this and they say, Brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter says in Acts 2.38, uh, repent, be baptized, for the forgiveness of sins. So you've got all three of those: repentance, baptism, and forgiveness of sins. And all three of those elements, remember, were part of Jesus' Great Commission instructions that you're going to go to all nations, you're going to baptize them. And in Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sins is going to be preached in his name to all nations. So here in Acts 2.38, you have clearly the beginning of this mission. But I pointed out last week, not only is it the beginning of the mission, it's also the beginning of the church. And I told you how we know that it's the beginning of the church. I'll in 90 seconds remind you. But we know it's the beginning of the church because this is the first time that the baptism of the Spirit has occurred. Jesus said in Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but uh, but you will be baptized by the Spirit in just a few days. In a few days. And then that few days is the day of Pentecost and this phenomenon that, that I mentioned. And Peter, who was there, and Peter's the one who stood up and explained everything that was happening, later in Acts chapter 11, he's explaining that the same thing happened to some Gentiles that he gave the gospel to at the home of a man named Cornelius. And they were able to speak in in tongues as well. And he calls that, Peter does, in Acts chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, Acts 11, 15 and 16, he calls that the beginning. That the Holy Spirit came upon them just as He did on us at the beginning. So in Acts 1 5, this spirit baptism was still future. Jesus says it's going to be in a few days. When you get to Acts chapter 11, it's already happened at the beginning. That beginning was at Pentecost. So uh, spirit baptism occurred for the first time in Acts chapter 2, and it is spirit baptism that forms the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 12. And verse 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. So you put all that together. In Acts chapter 2, you've got the beginning of the Great Commission and the beginning of the church, both of those taking place starting simultaneously. And then the book of Acts moves forward. And it moves forward. Uh, and documents the progress now of the mission from Jerusalem and beyond. So as you look at the book of Acts, you could, and I would recommend you should, take Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 as the outline for the book of Acts. Because Acts eight is where Luke records Jesus as saying a third statement of the Great Commission. He's given it in Matt it's been given in Matthew twenty-eight, it's been given in Luke twenty-four, and now to pick up where Luke left off in the Gospel of Luke, he starts the book of Acts, Acts chapter one and verse eight, with Jesus saying, You shall be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, and into Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, that's the outline for the book of Acts. This is what Luke is saying, I'm now going to document. I'm going to document the progress of the mission starting in Jerusalem and moving out to Judea and Samaria and to the the ends of the earth. Now, how does he how does he do that? He documents this expansion of the the mission by giving seven progress reports. There are seven progress reports in the in the book of Acts. And I'm just going to give you the references for these seven Progress reports. The first one is in Acts two and verse forty-seven. Acts chapter two and verse forty seven. Excuse me, you tell me what page like? One. What? I'm messing with you. I seventeen. You awesome. <laughs> seventeen. That's stopped by a train. One half seven, seventeen. We're on page seventeen. And you know, those of you that came in after having gotten stopped by the train. So that would be the Wilsons, and that would be uh, John and Sharon, the Seals, and then Diane. And Were you guys caught by the train as well? Is that right? Wow. That's because we all live on that side of the train. You're on the wrong side of the tracks. You guys are on the wrong side of the tracks. I've known that about all of you guys, that's for sure. The wrong side of the tracks. And before you all came in, you know, the... It was a little sparse in here. And I was talking about all the slackers and the sinners who didn't, who didn't show up. I didn't quite use that terminology, but it was implied. So you have a legitimate excuse. You did you get caught by the train? Yeah. All right. Wait. So did everybody else. Well, welcome, everyone. Glad you guys could guys, show up. And we are on page 17. And the book of Acts... And Acts chapter 2 in particular uh, gives us the beginning of both the Great Commission and the church at the same time. But then, with Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 being the outline for the book of Acts, documenting the progress of the mission, starting in Jerusalem and then beyond, you get these seven progress reports throughout the book of Acts. The first one is in chapter 2 and verse 47. But then the next one is in chapter 6 and verse 7. So 247 and 6-7, And then 1224. Oh, excuse me, 931, 931. <laughs> chapter 9 and verse 31. And then 1224. So 247, 67, 931, 1224. And then 165, chapter 16 and verse 5. 1920, chapter 19 and verse 20. So you've got 247, 6, 7, 9, 31, 12, 16, 5, and then 28, 30, and 31. 28 verses 30 and 31. Now those seven progress reports, and chapter 28 verses 30 and 31 are the final two verses of the entire book. So it ends with Paul in a rented house in Rome that the gospel has made it to the capital of the empire of, in, in Rome by the end of the book of Acts. But remember, Jesus said the Great Commission is you're going to make disciples, and I'm with you to the very end of the age. So now the Great Commission is to continue from there, and that's what these 2,000 years later we're supposed, to, we're supposed to be about. So I'd encourage you to consider the outline of the book of Acts as in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then those seven progress reports showing the the progress of the the mission uh, through the church. Now, in Acts chapter 2, you've got that first church in in Jerusalem. And on page 17, you see Acts chapter 2 there, the coming of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people. Luke tells us, Luke who wrote Acts tells us 3,000 people came to Christ in one day. So 3,000 folks come to Christ. Uh, And then Luke gives us the characteristics of this first church in chapter 2 and verse 42. Chapter 2 and verse 42. He says they continued in the apostles' doctrine and to the fellowship. And then there's, in the IV, there's a comma. They continued in the Apostles' Doctrine and to the Fellowship comma to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, it's uh, when it says and to the Fellowship and then breaking of bread and prayer, there's not four different items. So it's not Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. It's the Apostles' Doctrine, and the fellowship and the fellowship was seen in the breaking of bread and prayer that's how their their fellowship was manifest And, and then verse 47 tells us that they enjoyed the favor of all the people now out of that the characteristics of that first church then I say in our newcomers orientation material and I repeat for you now that that, that gives you a hint as to some of the characteristics of a healthy church. That a healthy church will have uh, three things going on in roughly equal proportion if it's to be a, a healthy church. That it will have learning experiences with the word of God. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. And it will have relational experiences with one another and it will have witnessing experiences with the world. So those three things: learning uh, experiences, relational experiences, and witnessing experiences. Now, if a church is going to be healthy, it needs to it needs to make sure it's doing all three of them, all three of those. And to the extent that churches don't do any of those three, to that extent, they are unhealthy. And you, if you think about it, you may have experienced or been in churches where you've got one of those, but maybe not the other two. Uh, if you, and if you, from my background, from a seminary background, graduating from seminary, uh, it's very easy to fall into the church being only a learning place and not a relational place or a witnessing place. So that's a hazard. And to that extent, if that happens, then that's it's ill health. But you can have churches that are relational and they're to the exclusion or near exclusion of the others. I grew up Pentecostal. Why are we called Pentecostals? Because we think we're doing what they did back in Acts chapter 2. We're not, we weren't, but we thought we were. We were called Pentecostals, but and, and we weren't taught a whole lot. In the church I grew up in, we weren't taught a whole lot. But we were very loving people. You come into our Pentecostal church when I was a kid, everybody's hugging everybody. And everybody calls each other brother and sister. And as a kid growing up, I didn't know people had first names (laughs) because they were Brother Smith, Sister Jones. They were all called brother and Brother and sister. So it was a very loving, relational environment, but we weren't taught much. Or you can have churches that are very given to evangelism and witnessing, but uh, can exclude the others as well. So you can have one of those, you can have two of those, but you really need to, if you're going to try to be a healthy church, try to have all three of those uh, going on and creating opportunities for the three of those things to to flourish. All right, on page uh, 17 then, again. In Acts chapter 3, now you've got the church in Jerusalem having started and the mission having started at the same time. 3,000 come to Christ on that first day and then the next three chapters, one of the features is that Peter and John are arrested and they're released. But before we get to their arrest, uh, chapter 3 opens with Peter and John going to the temple and seeing a man there who was begging for alms and this man was uh, unable to walk and you remember peter says i don't have silver and gold silver and gold have i none but such as i have i give to you in the name of jesus of nazareth get up and walk and the guy gets up and walks and i just want to point out that the apostles had the ability to do healings on command they could do healings on command they didn't go through the big scene they didn't go through the you know if you have enough faith they were able to say get up and walk because they had the gift of healing and talked about uh, the unique mission that they had to establish the church and the abilities that God gave them for miracles in order uh, to do that and that's an example Acts chapter 3 get up and walk now, they preach the gospel and they are arrested, and they are told not to speak in Jesus' name in Jerusalem. But of course they refuse. And in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, Acts 5 and verse 29, you have this statement of Christian civil disobedience in Acts 5:29. We must obey God. You remember? Rather than men, we must obey God rather than men. So they're told not to preach, and they're going to defy that edict of the authorities. We are going to preach. You now, I would recommend to you that you consider that to be a statement and an example of how, if Christian disobedience is going to take place, that's the kind of circumstance in which it takes place when the authorities tell you not to do something that God has required or the authorities tell you to do something that God prohibits in either one of those cases we must obey God rather than than men and that's what the, the authorities here or in any other country tell us we can't preach and we can't speak Jesus name we have to disobey that and because we have a higher commanding officer. We must obey God rather than men. But our disobedience is confined to that, that the authorities directly require of us not to do something God has required or to do something that God has has prohibited. Failing that, and that's a last resort to have to disobey. But failing that, you always, as a citizen or as an employee, or in any authority-subject relationship, you always have the option of respectful appeal. And you see examples of that in Paul in the book of Acts. Later, he will be before Roman authorities, and he'll be making respectful appeal. But then if the appeal fails... Then we're gonna to have to obey God rather than rather than men. And I would encourage you to think of, use a phrase like that, and do something like that in your interaction with people that are above you. And teach your kids that. That with their teachers, they have the option of respectful appeal. But notice the respectful piece. <laughs> and then the authority doesn't have to do what you're appealing to them to do. And if it's not something God has prohibited or required, then you've got to roll with it. And you'll have to learn to like it. And the way you learn to like it is you understand that there's a higher authority. And that God rewards that obedience on the part of His on the part of His people. So teach that to your kids, but you can only teach that to your kids if you practice it. Like at work. And I know I'm meddling now, but, but, you know, at work, it's hard to do that because everybody, unless you own the company, everybody works for an idiot. <laughs> I mean, that's what we all think. Whoever the manager is is an idiot. Until you get a promotion and you become the manager. And then what do you become <laughs> to everybody else? You become the idiot. So you would think we would learn this, you know, that you see the cycle over and over and over again, and whoever is in charge is always the idiot. And people talk about it, and why can't they get their act together and all of that. You know, well, if it's always like that at every level, and I had the advantage or disadvantage of when I had a real job, I went to a bunch of different places as a computer consultant, and I would be six months here and a year there. So I saw a bunch of different places. And it was almost always the same, no matter where I went. And I would tell people there who were employees, this is the worst company. I go, no, it's not. The one I was at last time was the worst company. (laughs) (laughs) And I know because they all told me that. (laughs) Okay. So respectful, respectful appeal. But we must obey God rather than men in those circumstances of the government, says do something God requires or, uh, or require something God prohibits. Now, in Acts 2, 3,000 are come to christ in acts chapter four luke is fond of giving uh, just these progress reports i gave you those seven and also giving in numbers he throws numbers in there and and i take from that that god cares about the progress of his mission and luke documents that people are coming to christ so in acts chapter two three thousand come. in acts chapter four and verse four Acts 4 and verse 4. It says that now the church has 5,000 men. 5,000 men. Now, it's 5,000 men. That doesn't include the women and children. So in ju- And that's just in a few weeks. The church has gone from 3,000 on one day to uh, 5,000 just the men, not including the women and children. So you have thousands of people in this church in Jerusalem. And Luke is documenting that uh, for us. So then you come to Acts chapter 6, middle of page 17. And one of the key events there is the the first uh, deacons. But notice the first line in that paragraph. By now there were at least 8,000 new believers. Because of Acts 2.42, 3,000. And then Acts four four, you got 5,000 men. And Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 starts this way. In those days, the number of disciples was increasing. So you already got 3,000. Then Acts chapter 4 says 5,000. And then Acts chapter 6 says the number of disciples is still increasing. So that's why you have this at least 8,000 number. It could easily be... 10,000 or more so you've got this burgeoning church going on and growing and a, a dispute arises and we'll talk about that dispute and how they handled it in a moment instituting the office of deacon in order to handle this problem but here you got this mega church you got the first mega church is in Jerusalem so one of the things we should be careful of is saying that it's wrong for a church to be large. Now, some of you may have said that. That it's wrong for a church to be over a certain size. Because if that's the case, the very first church blew it mm-hmm. at the very beginning at thousands of people. Now, there were that was a particular circumstance. That was the only church, that was the only game in town. The mission is to move out from Jerusalem. We're going to see how that happened in just a bit. But the idea that a church has to be, you know, a particular size, or there's a a magical maximum size that a church should be, is not something that we'll be able to prove. Now, practically speaking, there are a lot of things that you've got to you've got to think about as a church gets to a certain size and loses the one another kind of relational aspect that uh, I talked about earlier. And there are ways in order to expand the mission to do both of those, to keep the relational aspect of the church, but also see the mission move forward, namely by kicking people out and starting other churches. Uh, so that's a, that's a good way. That's our, that's our uh, vision for, for our church. So, but just bear that in mind, that here's a church that had 8,000, 10,000 people in it uh, in Jerusalem. And this problem arose. And what was the problem? Well, Acts chapter six tells us that the Grecian widows complained uh, that favoritism was being shown to the Hebraic widows in the distribution of benevolence. So the church had a a benevolence program to help widows. And in a church of that size, one you would have a lot. You would have a lot of people of different demographics. Including widows, so they got a lot of widows to take care of. But they not only have a lot of widows; they got widows from a couple of different camps. You got the Grecian widows, and you got the Hebraic widows. So who are they? And the Grecian widows are are Jews that are Hellenistic Jews. They are. I talked about that years ago or weeks ago. Seems like years ago, weeks ago. What Hellenism is? Hellenism is Greek culture and. So the Hellenistic widows are those who came from outside the environs of Jerusalem. And why did they come to Jerusalem? Well, they came in all likelihood for Pentecost. Well, Pentecost is over. So why didn't they go home? Why are they still in Jerusalem? And again, in all likelihood, this is the reason that The church back in Acts chapter 4 had all things in common. They actually shared their possessions together because people expected Jesus to come back like right away. And he's coming back to Jerusalem. He said he was coming back there. So we want to be here when he comes back. So you've got these people who came to Jerusalem as they did every year for Pentecost, but this year they didn't go back. So now you've got the church with these large numbers that they're, that they're dealing with. And so that's the Grecian widows, those who came from out of town, and you've got the Hebraic widows, those who were native to Jerusalem. And the Grecian widows thought favoritism was being shown to the home widows. So here's what the uh, leadership did. The apostles were the leadership of that first church. And Acts chapter 6 tells us that they made a proposal to the church. They said, we, the apostles, cannot spend our time on this because we've got to attend to our priorities of prayer and the word. But choose seven men from among you, seven men who have spiritual qualifications, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, and have them tend to this. And it says in Acts chapter 6 that the proposal pleased the whole group, And they chose seven men and it gives the names of the men. And interestingly, the names of the men are all Greek names. Now remember who had the complaint. It was the Grecian widows. So the guys they chose were from their camp. To carry this out, apparently on purpose to show we're going out of our way to indicate we're not showing favoritism to the uh, hebraic hebraic widows so the office of deacon starts in acts chapter 6 now in acts chapter 6 the thing that they do is tend to this distribution of benevolence so if you just leave it at that that's then all a deacon does you know a deacon just takes care of these sort of mundane things of the church And in a lot of churches, that's what deacons do. They take care of just stuff. Um, I was at a church in Washington, D.C., an an excellent church, um, six years ago now, six years ago next month. Uh, I was at Capitol Hill Baptist Church for five days for a conference. It's called Capitol Hill Baptist Church because it's four blocks from the Capitol. I was there in March of 2010. And that, was, that happened to be the weekend when Obamacare was being debated and passed. And on a Sunday afternoon of my time there, it was Sunday afternoon, they were having a Sunday vote in Congress. And it was a beautiful day in March. And we had a couple hours in the afternoon after church and we could do whatever we want. And I walk over to the Capitol and there are people everywhere protesting. And I'm loving this. <laughs> and... I'm there in this crowd and I'm talking to these people. There's people there from Michigan, you know, they're they're protesting Obamacare and all of that. And Michelle Bachman, you know, some of you know who she uh, was. She's not a congresswoman anymore, but she was a rabble rouser against Obamacare. And she's on this kind of overpass bridge and people are down there and she's getting everybody stoked. And there's just this big crowd and people got signs. And anyway, I have to leave. I go back. We had a session that evening. And the next day, the next morning, I get on my computer and I look at the Washington Post, which I do pretty much every day. And on the front page of the Washington Post is a picture of Michelle Bachman giving this rabble-rousing speech. (laughs) And it dawns on me, hey, I was there when she was doing that. And I start looking at the faces. There is me right there. (laughs) And so I email this to my family. Look. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway... I digress. uh... (laughs) This church is an excellent church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. But the way they are structured is the way many churches are, and that is that the deacons do, as I say, mundane stuff. Now, to be fair, it comes from, this is how the office of deacon started. Uh, So, like at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, they have a deacon of parking. Like the, and he's a deacon. And he's in, but his thing is to be the head of parking. Now, why do you need somebody to be the head of parking? Well, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you know that real estate is hard to come by. And here's a church of about seven 800 people, and they have this tiny parking lot. And a lot of people walk from the neighborhood and all of that, but if you're going to build anything in D.C., it's going to have to be up so just managing the parking is a huge is a huge task but anyway they've got a guy in charge or guys in charge and they're the deacons of parking and so how does how does that work well i just wanted to take a few minutes to tell you how we've tried to put together as best we can the three entities that the bible gives that are involved in decision making in the church three three entities I mean, one is the the pastors, also known as elders, also known as uh, overseers. All three terms apply to the same office. So pastors, but then the other one is deacons. Now, why do we include why do we include deacons in the decision making process? The reason is, if all you had was Acts six, then you don't have much to go on and you only have two other passages in the New Testament that mention deacons two but one of them is 1st Timothy chapter 3 1st Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 8 and it's giving qualifications for guys who will serve as deacons now some of you are familiar with 1st Timothy 3 but it gives the qualifications for pastors and it gives the qualifications for deacons and it gives the qualifications for deacons' wives. And those qualifications are pretty lofty. As a matter of fact, they're almost identical to the qualifications for pastors. The only There are only two that are different in the list. One is it does not say that a deacon has to be able to teach. And it does say that for pastors. And it does not say for a deacon... Uh, that he manages the church of God that he oversees the church of God remember a pastor is an overseer as well but he's got to manage his own household well he's got to have all the same character qualities minus those two things so it just raises a practical question for me why does the deacon of parking have to meet those qualifications and I've never been able to come up with a good answer to that. Why does the Bible give these lofty qualifications if the only thing that deacons do is just mundane stuff? But that's an argument from just, this is what the Bible says the qualifications are, but the only place that it tells you what deacons did is in fact in Acts chapter 6. And then there's a third place where deacons are mentioned, and that is in Philippians 1 and verse 1. Philippians one. 1. And Paul, who wrote the letter of Philippians, says in verse 1, Paul to the church at Philippi, together with the pastors and deacons. That's what it says. So he he singled out the pastors and and the deacons, as if that's a leadership role. That's the way I take that. But, that's all you got. So I can't prove it's a leadership role. It's (coughs) just the qualifications are lofty you've got them mentioned with the pastors in Philippians 1 so that's all the biblical evidence you have now practically as a wisdom matter Proverbs 15.22 Proverbs 15.22 says that there's wisdom in the company of many counselors so that's just a practical wisdom matter to have people that you can consult with on decisions. So if that's a wisdom matter, then what better group of people than people who have to meet these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 to be a group of uh, counselors? So in our church, we don't use the deacons only as doing stuff, but rather they have to meet these qualifications and they are part of what we call the leadership team leadership team is comprised of the pastors and the deacons. That's two entities. You've got the pastors, you've got the deacons, but then the third entity is the congregation itself. The congregation is involved in the decision making. We see some examples of that in the New Testament. One is when Jesus says in Matthew 18 if discipline has to be administered that the final step is to tell that to the church. And the church is to take action. You've got the you got the same thing in Second Corinthians chapter two, second Corinthians two, church discipline, where Paul says Deal with this discipline matter when you are gathered together. When the congregation is gathered, then deal with this discipline matter. So that's one Indication that the congregation has some role in decision making is in discipline matters, but also in Acts chapter 6. Because they had this problem, the apostles were the leaders, the apostles recognized the problem, they made a proposal, choose seven men, but then Luke tells us that proposal pleased the whole group. Now, I infer from that, and I admit I'm inferring that Luke includes that to say if it had not pleased the whole group, they would have come up with something else. But it pleased the whole group. And in Acts chapter 15, that we'll see later, there's a meeting of the church as well. And the apostles lead this and they have a discussion about how Gentiles are to be treated in the in the church. But again, it says that, that the proposal that was made pleased the entire church group so the congregation has a role to play as well you got these three entities you got pastors you got deacons you got the congregation so how do you fit how do you fit all that together for the first two we have this leadership team but the pastors have a role that the deacons don't have even in that because first Timothy 517 first Timothy 5:17 says that elders I'm quoting direct to the affairs of the church. So they've got a responsibility. Pastors have a responsibility to direct the affairs of the church. So here's how that looks for us. The pastors, I say it this way, set the agenda for the church. But they bring that to the deacons as part of the leadership team. So when we meet as a leadership team, the agenda comes from, is is initiated by the pastors, but... Uh, The deacons can add to that as well. And then we discuss what's on the agenda. And we don't move forward with anything unless there's a, and this is the word I use, a consensus amongst the leadership team. Now, I don't say unanimity. It doesn't have to be unanimous. But we like for it to be unanimous. And I don't know of anything we've ever done to this point, that wasn't unanimous. The only reason I say consensus is because you could hit an issue where, say you've got eight people on your leadership team, and you got one person who's not sure about it. Even if you know, even if you got one person who's not sure about it, unless it's time sensitive, it's something you gotta do now, then table it. And let's come back to it next month. And let's pray about it some more and let's see if we can't come to a unanimous agreement on this so you try for unanimity but it's certainly a consensus and then nothing comes to the church for ratification unless it has been vetted through the, the whole leadership team so then there are things that the church is asked to approve and to vote on now what things are those what things do you bring to the whole church well you Believe me, you don't want everything being brought to the whole church, okay? Because I, one of these days, I'm just going to, in a day or over two days, I just want to count every decision that has to be made in a day or two. What it, I, I think I would be shocked at just how many, and, you know, from the small to the, you know, the medium size to the large, but there's just stuff happening, you know, all the time. Emails and phone calls and should we do this, should we do that, can we do this, can we do that, all kinds of decisions all the time. You don't want, believe me, you don't want that, and it would be completely inefficient anyway, wouldn't it? So, what? But what things do come to the church? Uh, for us, it is those things that affect the entire congregation. Decisions that affect the entire congregation, we come to the congregation with. If it's something that affects one aspect of the ministry, or it's the administrative kinds of decisions, then you know that's what you've called leadership to do. Make those decisions. But if it's stuff that affects the whole church, then you bring it to the church. And those are things like our annual budget. How we're going to spend the money that the congregation gives. We vote on that. And we detail, This is these are the categories. So here's how we're going to plan to, to spend the money. Calling leadership. If you're going to add a pastor, if you're going to add deacons, the congregation votes on on leadership because that affects the whole that affects the whole church. If you're going to obligate the church legally somehow to a loan to buy a building, then that goes to the because we're all on the hook for this now. <laughs> when we when we do that, so we bring that to the the church. But it's things that affect the whole church most of the time when we have our family meetings. Then, if you've ever been to our family meetings, we try to keep those to about an hour. Normally, we're able to do that. But in that hour, 30 to 45 minutes of it is usually me just saying, Here's stuff that's going on. It's mostly just informative. And we normally will have one or two or three things that affect the whole congregation that we're asking for congregational voting. Okay? So that's, that's the first deacons. And that's why we do and treat deacons the way we do here. That's the rationale. But others simply say, look, the only place that you have the work of a deacon described is in Acts 6, and they're right about that. And it's the distribution of of food, and so therefore, they go with the the deacon of parking uh, kind of approach. All right, Acts 6 through 8 has the first deacons, but notice as well, it says, by now there were at least 8,000 new believers who had originally come to Jerusalem for the Jewish holidays surrounding Passover. To help in getting supplies to everyone, the first servers were chosen. One of them now was Stephen. And Stephen was martyred. Acts chapter 6 is the first deacons. Acts chapter 7 is the martyrdom of Stephen. And the entirety of Acts chapter 7 is devoted to the stoning of Stephen. But if you just read quickly, you'll, you'll miss the fact that Stephen was one of the seven guys that was chosen to be a deacon. So in Acts 6, one of these deacons is this guy. And this guy, you know, it's another reason, frankly, that he's not just the deacon of parking, okay? If you look at the message that he delivers in Acts chapter 7, this is a marvelous message of the word of God and the panorama of the whole plan of God, bringing Christ as the Messiah and all of that and he's willing to be martyred and, and is but as a result of an, uh, Stephen's martyrdom his execution at the end of Acts chapter 7 it tells us that a great persecution broke up now remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 the church begins in Jerusalem and then goes to Judea and Samaria And it's in Acts chapter 8 that that spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria begins. And it begins in connection with the martyrdom of Stephen. There's this persecution and the church is dispersed now to these outer regions. Now in God's providence, that's the means that He used in order to move the church out in the the Great Commission. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but there are people who say that, you know, maybe they hung around in Jerusalem too long. Because Jesus had said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here they are just hanging out at the home church, the home base. So, they're being disobedient by not going into Judea and Samaria. And so God brings persecution. Well, there's nothing in the text that tells us that that's the reason. It just tells us a persecution broke out. And the reason I highlight that is don't fall into the idea that bad things happen only because you committed a particular sin. Because that's... What's behind that idea? They have these bad things happening, persecution. Why did this bad stuff happen to the church? Well, it's because they had been disobedient. Well, no, bad stuff can be happening when you're obedient. Did you know that? (laughs) And you can be preaching the word and you can be getting thrown in jail for it, as the apostles were, and saying we're going to obey God rather than men, and bad things happen anyway. So in God's providence, it was just his way of moving the church out into the regions the regions beyond. So that's Acts chapters uh, 6 through 8. And then in chapter 9, you have the conversion of Saul. About this time, a young, zealous Jew named Saul, who participated in the killing of Stephen. So Luke is very uh, careful as he goes through documenting all this because he says that, those who stoned Stephen back in chapter 7 laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So that's the first time you're introduced. There's a guy named Saul who's consenting to the execution of this good man, Stephen. And then you have this very same Saul on the road headed to Damascus to persecute uh, the church. And Christ himself appears appears to him. Middle of that paragraph, on the way he was converted through a vision, Saul, also called Paul, then stayed out of the mainstream for about ten years to study the Scriptures. Did you know that? So he comes to Christ, but then he, he doesn't become the superstar Paul immediately that we know of from the New Testament and the rest of the book of acts later he comes to christ but then if you were to read in galatians chapter 1 galatians chapter 1 paul gives a bit of his his history there and he says that i did not consult with those in jerusalem he says the, the apostles i didn't go to the apostles and get my message i didn't go he says i went to arabia that's what Galatians one says. That Paul's in the desert, and there, and there he says for three years that he was taught by the Lord, and then from there he goes to his hometown of Tarsus, and he and he serves and he serves there. So for for years after becoming a Christian, Paul is is being taught by the Lord in Arabia. He's. Um, Systematizing what will later become his the, the teaching that he he puts together in Acts chapter three or excuse me Ephesians three you know Paul says and I read this for you last week where he says for this reason I kneel before the Father and then he just breaks off the thought and says surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. And then he says, This is the this is the mission that Christ gave me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. I was given this commission to do this. So Paul was specially chosen and commissioned to do this, and he was taught over a long period of time before he actually went went out on that on that mission. Now we call him Saul and we call him Paul. Why? It was not unusual in those days uh, for a Jew who was under the Roman political system to have both a Jewish name, Saul, and a Roman name, Paul. So that was not unusual. And when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So when with the Gentiles, use your Roman name. So it was not unusual. But here's another you know, just interesting thing, at least interesting to me. The first time you have Saul referred to as Paul is in Acts chapter 13. And in Acts chapter 13, it mentions in verse 7 of Acts 13 an encounter that Saul had with a Roman magistrate. And this Roman magistrate's name was Sergius Paulus. And it's two verses later that Luke mentions Saul and then in parentheses says who is also called Paul. So some think that he adopted Paul as his Roman name. And especially as he's now going to go on this mission to the Gentiles after he had this encounter with Sergius Sergius Paulus. But it's right in in that context. So however he acquired Paul it was his Gentile name. Saul was his was his Jewish name. And then in Acts chapter ten, you have Peter. Peter going to the home of a man named Cornelius. And the reason he goes to this man's home is because Peter is given a, a vision from the Lord. And you might remember from Acts ten this vision was of a large sheet. And it had these four corners to it that are the four corners of the world. And in this sheet are animals of all types, including animals that in the Old Testament were considered unclean. Yeah. And the Lord tells Peter, kill and eat. That you you can have these animals that were forbidden in the Old Testament. But that was just a, a metaphor for a larger point that the Lord was making to him that now this message is not going to be just for the Jews it's going to be for those who were considered unclean before the Gentiles and he's given this vision and told after the vision now go to the home of a Gentile I've given you this vision that this message is going to be for the Gentiles not just for the Jews and I want you to go to one such Gentile gives explicit instructions about where to go and that he'll be greeted and he goes to the house of a man named Cornelius who is, as I pointed out last week Acts 10 tells us, a God-fearer and a God-fearer is not just the general uh, a God-fearing person a God-fearer was a term for a Gentile who observed Jewish customs and that's what Cornelius was and Peter goes to his house preaches the gospel cornelius receives christ and he and his household are baptized with the spirit and they and we know they're baptized with the spirit acts 10 says for they began to speak in tongues so that was the third of the four pentecosts i told you about last week if you were here so you got pentecost you got acts chapter 8 with the samaritans as the gospel goes out into samaria And then Acts chapter 10 with the God-fearers. And then Acts 19 later with your run-of-the-mill Gentiles in the Ephesus. So in Acts 10, Peter goes and he preaches to Cornelius. And the gospel begins to go uh, for the first time to to Gentiles. Now, that's the second to the last time you're going to hear from Peter in the book of Acts. Uh, If you go to the bottom of page 17, you see Peter imprisoned and released by an angel. So you have that, but in between Acts 10 and Acts 12, you've got Acts 11 that focus on Paul and Barnabas. So why? From minute one, at the beginning of the church, the star from a human standpoint has been none other than Peter. And I told you guys that I believe personally that when Jesus said, you know, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, I personally think he's talking about Peter. And, and you don't have to be afraid of Peter being the rock, because Peter being the rock doesn't make Peter the Pope, Okay, contrary to what our Roman Catholics say. But the truth of the matter is, Peter was the guy from the very beginning. And he's the guy who stands up at Pentecost. And he's the guy that goes into the temple at Jerusalem. And he's the guy who says we'll obey God rather than men in Acts uh, 5.29. And he's the guy who goes and gives the gospel to the household of uh, Cornelius. But now it's going to switch from Peter to Paul. And from Acts 13 on, it's it's going to be all Paul all the time. And no Peter. So from Acts one through twelve you got a lot of Peter. From Acts thirteen to twenty-eight, you got no Peter. And Dr. Combs' class that he's teaching, he divided into two semesters. Uh, the first semester was Acts one through twelve. And this semester he's teaching thirteen to twenty eight. That's part of the reason. Because you have that twofold division the ministry of Peter and then the ministry of Paul. But but here you got Peter, then mention of Paul and Barnabas, then Peter again. And just here's my theory as to why. Why does why does Luke arrange it that way? You know, Peter, Paul, then Peter. Well, it's because the next, you know, the final uh, 14 chapters of the book are all going to be devoted to 16 chapters of the book will be devoted to Paul, and um, and he wants us to know that Peter hasn't died. Peter's still on the scene, but the narrative moves away from Peter. So it's Luke's way of saying Peter, who was so prominent, he's still alive, he's still ministering, but now the focus is on Paul and his ministry and missionary journeys to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 11, you got Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, and I will talk about them next week. Okay, so we're done.